Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rebeck and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the biggest issues over the past 12 months and indeed over, over, over many decades uh, has been the way in which women have been treated in workplaces, the way in which they've been uh, harmed in various different ways. And then joining me today is the author, an extraordinary author, in fact, uh, of, a, of a new book called On Reckoning. Amy Ramekis. Amy is a political reporter with The Guardian, but she's also written On Reckoning recently, and she'll take us through what On Reckoning is, but also what the experience is about writing about personal trauma and about things that uh, actually um, resonate, not just when they occur, but many, many, many years after. Amy, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Now, but before we get on to on reckoning and some of the issues uh, that uh, you raise in there, uh, some people may not be fully aware of your your career and your background. How would that look in an elevator pitch written down on a on a yellow post at night? Uh, I uh, started journalism in the regions. I was a radio and television reporter in the regions. I worked in Tamworth throughout regional Queensland. I moved to regional newspapers in Queensland at the uh, Sunshine Coast Daily in what used to be called APN. Uh, Went travelling for a while, came back, moved to Brisbane where I worked for Fairfax uh, covering court and then state politics. Then I moved to Canberra with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And now I work for The Guardian as their political live blogger. So I cover parliament in real time, as well as doing just a general political dog's body when parliament isn't sitting. Now, with The Guardian, you published uh, an extraordinary piece that I, I read uh, about something that uh, uh, sold a rape that happened to you. Before we get on to one reckoning, which is uh, which is a part of a continuum of you talking about these issues in print and, and, and on television and elsewhere, take me back to the first piece you wrote. Uh, was it you who suggested uh, the piece to, to the editors at The Guardian? I had a conversation with a very good friend uh, about about men who rape and uh, he'd said to me that he didn't believe that they were men, that they were monsters. He didn't understand how anyone could, you know, just... T- just violate somebody else quite like that he didn't he didn't understand how that would be a human act and it just got me thinking that we often think about sexual violence in terms of monsters hiding under the bed or just monstrous acts when really more often than not they are carried out just by men just everyday men and statistics show it's more likely to be the person in your bed rather than under your bed Uh, you're more likely as a woman to be harmed by a partner than someone that you don't know so uh, it got me thinking and I wrote that piece in kind of answer to that uh, because I was raped uh, and then I was later 10 years after my rape I was again grabbed off the street by a man who had seen me walk past a pub and decided that he liked my hair so he followed me he tried to follow me home and grabbed me on my way home and neither of those men were monsters they were just men who decided that they could take ownership 
over me in that particular moment. So I wrote the piece quite quickly uh, and sent it in to the lovely people that I work with uh, at The Guardian. There's pretty big separations between comment and uh, editorial. So um, I'd sent it to the people who did comment uh, and they very kindly published it for me. And it uh, it got a pretty big reaction. This was before yep. all of the stuff happened in Parliament uh, with Brittany Higgins ra- raising her allegations. I think because people don't really like to think about somebody that they know being a sexual assault victim. Uh, and a lot of people had no idea that that was part of my tapestry. So it started a conversation in that way, for which I was very grateful. Okay, you said you wrote it quickly, right? Um, let's break this up. Uh, when you were writing it, did sometimes writing about stuff feels cathartic. How, how was the experience capping the words out in that first instance? I think when you're writing about trauma in particular, it, it never particularly feels cathartic because it's not something that you ever get out of you it's part of you it lives within you uh i find it quite easy though to write personal essays like that because it's it is something that i do think about quite a lot you know those thoughts don't just exist in a vacuum they are constantly part of my everyday so it is something that i do think about and so when i do organize my thoughts on paper which is one of the ways that I find easiest to communicate I do find Mm -hmm. I I can write those things quite quickly well you you mentioned the writing uh, you talked about the writing now when we get to the publication of it how did it feel when it was published Uh, I can never really read something once it's published uh, so (laughs) I, it's the same. I can't. I can't watch myself on television or listen to myself back uh, after radio or on podcasts. And uh, I find reading something that I've written, particularly when it is so personal, quite difficult. So I often leave quite a bit of space. So I just, um, I'm just very lucky and very privileged to have a platform, and I try to use it for good. And uh, I have experiences as a as a as a human, that uh, a lot of people share. So I kind of see it as my duty to give voice to some of those experiences. All right. Now, that was the first piece you wrote about what happened to you. Let's jump to On Reckoning, which is your latest work. It's available online and in bookstores everywhere, guys. Don't seek it out. Um, In doing On Reckoning, was that easier to write? or harder or, or or much the same no it was it was a lot harder because it was so raw uh because last year was a really really difficult time to be covering federal politics particularly as a sexual assault survivor uh and it hasn't it hasn't got any easier covering those issues every Every week there seems to be uh, a new sort of trigger, if you like, uh, on those issues, which if you've experienced them, it does make it personal. Uh, it does bring back a lot, of, a lot of thoughts and issues for you. So I was, um, I was prompted to write the piece just because I was just really shocked at how badly 
the parliament and the government in particular fumbled that issue and fumbled their opportunity to do something to address sexual violence in Australia. And uh, I wrote it, uh, I wrote it over a couple of, a couple of weeks, but in one long line, I suppose I was still working full time. So I was writing it immediately after work uh, for a couple of hours, but it was exhausting because uh, it was it was so personal and there was a lot of hurt. And I often found that I'd be crying as I wrote the words, just remembering what had happened uh, in the parliament in that time and just how many people still did not get what has been happening to women in particular for decades in Australia. This is not a new issue and yet we keep having to have the same conversations. The last, the, that the last point we might want to briefly expand upon, Amy, because it's um, it, it is part of the need to have uh, the the repeated conversation because new people also enter into the fray, or is it just because you know there are people who are out there that are genuinely thick and they're not tuned into what's actually been going on. I don't think anyone is, is is thick. I don't think that this has got anything to do with, you know, people not being tuned in. It's just an uncomfortable conversation, and there are lots okay. of people who don't who don't want to have it. And it's not the fact that there's new voices because the new voices are saying the same things that have been said. I'm not saying anything new that hasn't been said for yeah. decades. Uh, and critics are not saying anything new that hasn't the arguments against why we shouldn't be talking about this. None of this is new. It's just a very uncomfortable conversation because we don't like to think about men in particular being uh, being perpetrators. We don't like that. We like to look for excuses as to why something may have happened. And it's one of those crimes where it is gendered. This is a gendered issue. So yeah. it often turns into he versus she. And in those instances, we kind of lose all sorts of impartiality and just start looking for reasons as to why it might have happened or why someone might be lying. And often uh, we kind of wash our hands off it and go, oh, well, it's too hard to work out who's telling the truth here, so let's move on. You mentioned a couple of interviews already uh, on television uh, that, that there were things that kind of triggered it. You mentioning the he said, she said thing reminds me of that the, the interlude of, uh, uh, I mean, the, I guess the, um, the slightly loose language Peter Dutton used during a, uh, an interview or, or, a, or a comment um, on some of the stuff that's been, that was said about the Brittany Higgins incident. And there's been others, including the one you've mentioned about uh, Scott Morrison. Now, it, it, how do we, how do we fix that? issue of the way in which we talk about this stuff we just think about it more but that's all we just think about the impact that those words have and we catch ourselves when we are just making those he said she said comments I mean recently in his press club address Scott Morrison referred to Brittany Higgins and the situation she found herself in Okay. Well, you know, the situation that Brittany Higgins found herself in was going out to drink with work colleagues, you know, like that, like that, that's it. Like the, co the constant mm -hmm. 
obsession with making women account for their actions after they have been attacked is exhausting, I think, because it's constantly like, what was she doing there? What was she drinking? Why was she with them? Why did she go back? What did she expect? And we don't ever turn that conversation on its head and go, what was he doing? What was he thinking? What led up to that point which made him think he could take ownership over another human being? Why was that allowed? What part of his character? And these are often people who were described as good guys by their friends and family. But what is it of their character that made them think that they could do this? What happened? What part of their development? So until we start having those conversations and stop the casualization of how we talk about sexual violence, we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, I'm, I'm well aware that uh, we've got a limited amount of time, but it, in term, moving away slightly from on reckoning, which again is available all over the place. The it's there's been an evolution in the conversation people have been having about politicians and the way they engage with the topic, Amy. Um, certainly, I've seen a trend um, emerge with um, uh, an issue of how we talk about. Uh, women in politics and how they engage with the topics themselves and crumb maidens become an int a term that's popped up more often. Um, it occurred to me the other day, uh, is, being, is being named a crumb maiden a life sentence for any of these people? I don't think being a crumb maiden is a life sentence at all. I mean, like, that's that's a term that I've used, you know, with friends for years, but I know that other people yeah. have also... Um, have also come up with it because it, it just makes sense. People who benefit from the residual crumbs of power by upholding those power structures, yeah. you know, you're, you're going to come up with crumbs, something or other to describe them. But a crumb maiden isn't, isn't gendered in my view. It's anyone who is upholding those power structures or allowing something to continue or excusing it or providing yeah. cover for it. Uh, because they do benefit in some way, whether that's, uh, you know, hopeful benefit, where they think that they might get a little bit of advancement in their career, because this is not just politics. This happens across the corporate world. It yeah. happens in social situations. It happens, you know, everywhere. But it's not something that I think anyone is tarred with for life, because we've seen people kind of go, oh, um, I now see what you're talking about. Usually that comes with personal experience after, you know, they've experienced something and discovered that the system uh, and those power structures are also against them. Uh, but you do see people kind of reverse ferret and just go, actually, no, uh, you know, this, this isn't healthy. We do need to address this. So, yeah, being labelled a crumb maiden isn't a life sentence, but I also think it's very, very unhelpful when we have people jump in to sort of uh, just delegitimise somebody's experience by jumping in and saying, oh, that's never happened to me. Well, okay, great. If that's never happened to you, you're very lucky, but why would you feel the need to jump in and try and cheapen the words of someone who is really raising issues 
within a workplace, a social situation, a school, parliament, whatever it is, by saying that it never happened to you. It doesn't do anything to help the debate. In fact, uh, it tends to sidetrack the conversation and we start talking about, you know, people who haven't experienced these things rather than people who have. And in fact, it, it ignores the, it also ignores the fact where that there are twenty five million plus people in this country, and just somebody coming out there and and saying it hasn't happened to them, um, that's only one person out of twenty five odd million. Mm, absolutely, and and I mean, like I understand that these experiences don't happen to everyone, but we do see, and I'm just going to use politics as an example because that's what I cover. We do see issues raised and then we see people trotted out to all the commentary shows to talk about how they've never experienced that themselves. And I don't think that that is helpful because if you've got a group of people trying to raise an issue, they should be given space. And politics, again, using that as an example, we know from the Kate Jenkins report into the parliamentary workplace culture that it is an issue for staffers, for politicians, for just people just attached to that building that more often than not, particularly for young women, they will be sexually assaulted, harassed or bullied in the workplace. So we don't need the people coming out and saying that didn't happen to me when we know that it is happening to a very big group of people. They're apologising about it in the parliament this week. That's how big an issue it is. Just in the case of bit, and I think the Jenkins report also referred to the media um, uh, as well, the media... Uh, folks having similar experiences, particularly the female reporters, correspondents, commentators. Um, I guess the, the, the challenge for everyone is how you how you engage in a climate when there are people like that. How do you and they're elected in Parliament. So what is the how do people deal with that, navigate that at the moment, Amy? It's been sometimes it's been anywhere near a press gallery. So, what what do you mean? How do how do people how do, how navigate? Do they, how do they navigate that? I mean, I, I I did hear a story at some point that within a press gallery cohort, there are times when people are people are warned that there are that there are certain areas they shouldn't go to without without company, for example. Well, that's that's not something that's just something that people in the press gallery or parliament experience. That's something that happens in workplaces all across Australia. I mean, the Whisper Network has been in existence for decades for exactly that reason. I mean, I remember reading um, a piece that Karen Middleton, another press gallery um, senior uh, reporter and editor wrote about what she experienced as a younger reporter in the press gallery when she first started out so it's not it's not it's not ubiquitous not everyone is having the same situation or the same experiences but everyone does know about you know things that they may not be able to report on for legal reasons or they can't stack up or you know just no one will speak on it this is not like there's some great big culture of protection happening either a lot of this stuff can't be proved uh and that's what makes it so difficult 
So I think that in terms of how you navigate it, you navigate it the same way that you do anything. You call out what you can. Uh, you try and make sure that everyone is as safe as possible. Uh, and you just keep up the calls for accountability and for action. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I operate. Uh, and I know that a lot of people are starting to look around them and going, we do need to do something about this. So hopefully we will see some change, but I think it's going to take some time. One final question uh, before I let you go and do, do other things. If you've got the world to conquer, I realise. But um, it, On Reckoning is a powerful piece of work. It's on par with everything you've done on the issue. Uh, what is your wish for, for that book? What would you like that book to achieve? Uh, all I wanted it to achieve, you know, all, as, as an essay was that it said something worthwhile and that it made some people realise that they're not alone. Uh, and it seems to have done that for some people, which is, you know, all, all I wanted from it was just to, to contribute to the conversation in a meaningful way because I can't speak for anyone other than myself uh, and, and I wouldn't want to. But there are a lot of people who deserve a, a space at this table who we don't necessarily hear from. And I wanted them to know that there is room for them. There is more than enough room for them and we need more voices if they're willing to lend them. Or just for those who can't tell their story and there's plenty who can't and they're no less brave or courageous for not telling their story because just getting out of bed honestly is is courageous when you've been broken down like that but just to let those people know that they're not alone and that we hear them and we see them and we believe them so I, I don't ex I never expected to change the world there was no set goal with the essay it was more of a here is what's been happening in the parliament. Here as a sexual assault survivor is how I saw it and interpreted it. Uh, and here is why I'm so goddamn angry about that entire, entire situation and what has been happening in this country. And I think it's time that we're allowed to be angry and that we, we have this conversation without having to sit there and be polite. And I also hope that it is given younger people a bit of a bit of hope that what they're doing to fight this is seen as well because the younger generation is just absolutely incredible in how they deal with all of these issues and the the respect that they demand uh, from such a young age is just inspiring so I just yeah I just wanted them to know that we see and we hear them too and we're just overwhelmed by what they're doing and I really do believe that they're going to be the ones who eventually change the world. Amy, it's, uh, you've got a very powerful book out there. On Reckoning is available uh, everywhere, as I said earlier. Uh, thank you so much for to making the time to talk about the book and please don't be a stranger. I'd love to do this again sometime. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for all you do. No worries. Thank you. And I've been talking to Amy Ramikis, political reporter from The Guardian, who's written a book called On Reckoning.